Good afternoon. Welcome to Ethical Reflections. Today, we're going to discuss the hot topic of paid family leave. I am Brianna Thompson. And I'm Inakshi Das. We will present a mini debate on the arguments for and against mandating paid family leave in the U.S. at the national level. This debate will present ethical frameworks for each position. To start, let's define paid family leave for the scope of this podcast. According to the Department of Labor, paid family leave, or paid family and medical leave, means longer-term leave to care for an ill family member or for a parent when he or she has a child. For the purposes of our discussion, we will refer to paid family and medical leave as paid family leave, or PFL, and we will discuss it in the context of maternity leave. PFL is different from paid time off, such as sick leave or vacation days. After workers take family leave, it is up to the employer whether the employee will get her job back. The U.S. is one of two countries that does not have a national paid leave policy to allow parents to care for a newborn or to allow mothers to regain health after childbirth. Almost all other countries have laws that provide maternity and paternity leave, allowing workers to return to their jobs after taking this type of leave. Most workers are covered under the Family Medical Leave Act, which provides for 12 weeks a year time off to care for family members, but this leave is unpaid. Mothers may have to take unpaid leave and risk losing their jobs during maternity leave or quit their jobs altogether. 14% of employers offer fully paid maternity leave with guaranteed job return, but this is not mandated by law. Also, most of these benefits are concentrated among high-income sectors and companies. This widens the gap in opportunities between rich and poor. Between 2006 and 2008, 22% of new mothers quit their jobs, 42% took unpaid leave, and 51% used paid maternity leave, sick leave, or other paid leave postpartum. It is rather disheartening to learn the statistics and how appallingly U.S. lags behind European and Latin American countries where it was first introduced in the 1800s. The U.S., along with a small handful of Pacific Oceania countries, are unfortunately the only ones to not have a national paid parental leave law in place. On a global level, in at least 178 countries and more than 50 countries, employers are mandated to guarantee paid leaves for new mothers and fathers, respectively, set at 100% for 16 weeks for mothers and 4 weeks for fathers by the United Nations. So what are some of the social, economic, and ethical considerations these governments have made along the way, which more than offset the minor economic losses that potential businesses might have to bear? Firstly, it induces women's labor force attachment. PFLs help retain the level of wage or salary earnings, especially at a time of additional family expenditures. By ensuring job security, the mother knows she can get back to her work post-recuperation. This not only increases her level of confidence, it lowers female attrition rates and frictional unemployment and helps prevent any unintended derailment of her career and thus averts economic loss to the society at large by retaining another generation of potential dropout mothers at work. This again reiterates the strong links that labor economists have always observed between 
family-friendly policies and labor force participation rates amongst women. Indeed, U.S. plummeted from having the sixth largest female labor force participation rate to the 17th position by 2010, largely of what was attributed to the new lack of family-friendly policies as against the expansion of such policies among other OECD countries. At this point, I cannot agree more with the equity argument evident here. By equity, I imply equity from economic or financial and gender, gender aspects. While the job security aspect affects both high, middle, middle and low-wage workers, the pecuniary aspect of paid leaves is bound to incentivize low-income female workers more. Also, since biology cannot be defied and women will bear children along with the repercussions that come along, isn't lack of PFL skewing the already skewed labor-gender ratio? At this point, it is pertinent to point out that early implementation evidence of paid family leave program in California, one of the few states to have it in place, suggests that it is particularly important to monitor eligibility and use of PFL benefits by low-income women. Since there are also women with relatively lower levels of education, mostly being high school and college dropouts, they are a vulnerable population to whom job finding is rather stressful and difficult. Thus, a program like PFL can be looked upon as a driver of progressive benefits, leaving a rather strong impact on the less educated and less advantaged mothers. At a time when a new member is added to the family or a sick family member needs care, it helps attenuate a potential burden of medical expenditures in families possibly lacking access to health insurance and other social safety nets. The California study also indicates that PFL indeed increased the likelihood that high school dropout mothers return to work compared to those without access. PFLs has an undeniably possibly positive impact on the health of the mother, the infant, or the sick family member. The UN benchmark of the 10-week minimum post-delivery leave allows sufficient recovery time and lowers risk of postpartum depression and related medical complications. To the new, newborn, this translates to improved regularization of immunizations and pediatric consultations while allowing for regular breastfeeding at least during the most vulnerable initial period of infancy. Of course, all this would have long-run impact on lowering infant mortality rates. After all, who can ignore that helping a mother is helping a family and helping the future generation? Now, I, Brianna, will discuss the argument against mandating paid family leave. Before discussing this from an ethical point of view, let's ask ourselves, what is the actual purpose behind this leave policy? Some people say, America is the only developed country that doesn't have it. Perhaps this relates to equality in some way, if you're comparing it to other developed countries. But is this truly a substantive reason to offer paid family leave? The second reason that proponents cite in support of mandating paid family leave is that it helps families. But before even considering the ethical implications of these arguments, is the latter actually true? In a capitalist society, the laws of economics matter, and mandating paid family leave won't change the basic principles of supply and demand. Mandated maternity leave, or paid family leave, is not like neutral benefits such as vacation or sick days. 
PFL makes it more expensive for companies or businesses to hire women. The smaller the business, the more onerous the burden of paid family leave becomes on that business. I don't think that's necessarily fair. If the objective is to help families, especially disenfranchised women, then mandating PFL could be counterproductive. If an employer is faced with choosing between accommodating a woman and still facing potential litigation, maybe the company will be more likely to hire a man and avoid the whole situation. Lastly, if a goal of the policy is to keep women in the labor force or encourage their return to work after having a family, PFL is actually detrimental. The only way to get paid family leave is to work full-time. Maybe women shouldn't have to choose between working full-time and receiving paid family leave and working part-time but receiving no such benefits. The more inflexible the policy, the harder it is on employers to accommodate such policies. This is counterproductive, even if mandating it sounds like a good idea at the outset. PFL is found to leave a rather positive impact on employer or business productivity, profitability, and growth. As a counter-argument, I would like to state the results of a federal survey conducted in 2000 that employers implement work-life initiatives to increase employee retention and decrease costly new employee training and employee turnover. With paid and job-protected leaves, women tend to take at least the six to eight weeks of leave post-birth that is recommended by physicians. Beyond this, leaves in fact increase the commitment of women to their employers and to the labor force so they do in fact take leave rather than quitting their jobs and taking a chance at finding new employment later. Workload during this while can be shifted onto existing employees and through minor internal adjustments. Also, implementation of PFL is relatively easy as it is a block leave rather than being scattered over time. In terms of funding, the International Labor Organization reports that more than 85% PFLs across the globe are funded through social security programs that shift the burden onto the government or federal taxpayers. Another 10% are funded through mixed public mechanisms consisting of both contribution by the government and employers. In California, funding occurs through small employee payroll tax contribution, thus shifting the burden away from direct employer payment. Thus, this does not hurt the profitability of small employers in a magnitude that is perceived and hence, the argument of competition fails to stand its ground. In fact, several reports suggest that countries guaranteeing PFL to care for family health have the highest level of economic competitiveness. Above all, coming back to the American labor scenario at this epoch-making tumble tied to the retirement of baby boomers, the U.S. urgently needs an infusion of all available workers it can get to retain its productivity levels, and that might meet, mean rethinking its outlier status on benefits for new mothers. Now I will present an ethical foundation for my argument against mandating PFL. Equity in the workplace is no doubt important. I would argue that tying the hands of employers to offer fully paid leave decreases equity in the professional environment. You could make the argument that since women bear children and also contribute disproportionately to childcare roles in a family, 
that offering fully paid time off increases equity. But let me offer this alternative view on equity. Having children can be, and often is, a choice. As a woman, I may not choose to have children. However, if an employer is considering hiring me or a man, that employer might hire a man because I could potentially have children one day and cash in on my fully paid maternity leave. In fact, mandating this could decrease the equity in my hiring opportunities because of my association as a woman and potentially as a mother. Mandating fully paid time off limits the flexibility of employers and workers and actually may be unfair to men as well. Where is the equity in knowing I have fully paid time off just because I'm a woman who might make a life choice that a man cannot physically make? Sure, in many instances, it behooves a company to offer decent paid time off in order to attract very qualified candidates. But should this be the right of the worker if they choose to start a family? Maternity leave can reinforce existing gender roles and buttresses the idea that needing time off to care for children is not a neutral or universal benefit. From an ethical viewpoint, PFL is an extension of protection of workers' rights, not just women's, while reinforcing financial independence. Through PFL, the employer is giving his employees an opportunity to take some vital life decisions, the lack of which implicitly forces a couple to delay starting a family or broadly put, their right to happy and content living, irrespective of their financial status. However, a lesson to be learned from California's experience is proper targeting of beneficiaries such that majority of new mothers do take advantage of this policy and that take-up is higher among low-income women. This again pivots on the Rawlsian theory of justice which urges a progressive social policy to maximize the welfare of the worst off, in this case, low-income women. I'm not arguing that avoiding paid family leave altogether is the answer. Let's make paid family leave an option that is positioned toward both genders. In the spirit of the ethics of care, paid family leave should be available to both men and women in equal measure. We could treat caregiving responsibilities like basic human needs in the workplace, such as vacation or sick days. The flexibility to care for another human, be it a baby or a parent, whether the employee is a man or a woman, should be the focus of our policy. A more neutral policy sets the stage for a fairer division of labor, both at work and in the home. In Iceland, for example, equal maternity and paternity leave options were enacted in 2000. A conservative government then instituted a use-it-or-lose-it mandate on this caregiving leave. Between 1997 and 2008, the percent of Icelandic men taking paid family leave went from 0% to 90%. It now stands at 70%, with caregiving responsibilities in the home better divided between men and women in Iceland. Iceland is the number one ranked country in the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index. We should strive for policies that integrate caregiving into images of masculinity in this country. And mandating paid family leave for working mothers is not a way to do that. In agreement to Brianna's point on occupational sex segregation, I would say that PFL should allow for paternity leaves with equal fervor. At a time when expectations of the young generation from work 
has evolved to include improvements in work-life balance, increased family time, lower stress levels and burnout rates, it is pertinent that new fathers be entitled as well and allowed to be involved with the children and other family members as equally as the mother. This, in my belief, would go a long way towards equalizing the fallacious distribution of family labor in favor of mothers and correct the preconceived patriarchal mindset ingrained within the society. As our good friend John Rawls said, society's structure is society's main political, constitutional, social, and economic institutions and how they fit together to form a unified scheme of social cooperation over time. In that spirit, let's incentivize paid family leave for any worker in the home and let's expand the flexible options for why and when workers can take that leave. These policies need to encourage sustainable, long-term cooperation. Furthermore, this argument had not even introduced the ethical argument behind discouraging population growth. The world's population will increase 34% by 2050, according to the World Resources Institute. Maybe instead of promoting policies that reinforce gender roles and uphold the expectation to have children at the expense of our environment, we should promote caregiving as a social and ethical responsibility shared by all. If we set the precedent that workers of both genders can reasonably expect to take caregiving leave, this could also potentially offset the unintended negative effects of supply and demand. Paid family leave is no more an option but a mandate as long as governments take care that this social policy addresses the most in need and going progressively towards the less in needy while upholding the belief of workplace equity and societal justice. We appreciate your attention. Thank, Thank you. you.